every business has those moments, right? Where they're just like, I think it's not going to work out, right? It's going to fail. And that was my moment, definitely, when I, when I felt that, for sure. For in the back of your mind, your dreams should be real, right? Thanks all for tuning in to Dreamcatchers, where we make things happen. Dreamcatchers was formally launched to unlock the hidden potential in successful, self-motivated individuals who desire to take their life's work to the next level but need support to evolve. We are a collective group of professionals with various backgrounds that use our talents to assist those individuals in realizing their wildest dreams by providing education, inspiration, and direction. This podcast is where we share the lessons we've learned along the way to catching our dreams and give you some context around the how and the why to each approach to put you further ahead on the journey to catching your dream. Are you ready? Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Dreamcatchers podcast. I'm your host, Jerome, and I have Alex Sandrovsky with me today. Alex, how are things in your neck of the woods? It's going great, my friend. It's going great. Like, I, I was thinking about this conversation and what would be the perfect background, and I said it's about going beyond our own internal presence and getting like dreams. So I said, okay, well, let me, let me pull up a little prison background. So feeling good, feeling good. That's awesome. So if the listeners want to get in contact with you after they hear what you share, what's the best way to do that? I think the best way is LinkedIn. I'm very active there. That's how we met. And uh, they're more than welcome to reach out for anything that I discuss, any part, any element of what I talk about yeah, professionally or personally. I'm, I'm an open book. I try to be a resource for people as, as uh, I've had people being so kind to me. So I try to pay it for as much as I can. That's awesome. And so you're over in Israel, right? I am. Exactly. I am. Wow. 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 It's amazing what technology allows us to do. So exactly. I mean, tell me the story, man. How did you grow up there? Like, were you in the U.S.? Like, breaking this all down for me. I'll, I'll just give you the quick story. Um, I grew up in uh, in a former Soviet Union. So I grew up actually in the, you know in behind the curtain. So those guys, those scary guys that some Americans thought one day would, you know, annihilate the United States. I was I was in that country. <laughs> so I was growing up in that place. I was part of their Boy Scouts. So I grew up. I woke, you know, was born in '87. Uh, it was interesting. My father. Probably some of you might have watched HBO Chernobyl. So you know, some people might be familiar with Chernobyl. So my father was one of the firefighters who went to clean up Chernobyl. And the, the family, the timing is very close to when I was born nine months later. So, but they say the timing was, uh, they said that they you know, ignored the radioactivity in the, in the evening when you glow. So they said nothing happened, nothing happened there. So I grew up in a very, very interesting home. Um, so in the former Soviet Union, my father was one of the early entrepreneurs uh, in, in the former Soviet Union, just as there was this thing called perestroika. So a lot of you went from a socialist state to a, a privatized state. And my father was able to really play a role in that in a major way. So I grew up in this extreme home of, on one hand, my father was at a certain point, he had close to 5,000 employees, railroads, construction, really incredible airplane company, a fascinating type of bringing Western technology to the former Soviet Union, which is, again, just was trying to catch up. And on the hand, I grew up with a mom who was a very sick, brilliant woman. But from when I was born, she had hepatitis C. So we had this two worlds are always kind of, you know, in, in my life. On one hand, my father, the entrepreneur, 
and my mom who was extremely brilliant gifted woman you know extremely charismatic going through this massive uh, traumatic experience of being sick and i was growing up in that world so that was that was my upbringing when i was seven years old we moved from moldova which is one of the republics to the big city to moscow from seven to nine i was there and uh just quick word my reason why we got there was my mom needed a liver transplant she tried every form of alternative medicine out there reiki homeopathy meditation acupuncture and just it wasn't effective so we were in the place where moscow had good supposedly good medicine and she was about to have a transplant and uh, she was the way she told it to me was she was laying in her bed and next to her she just saw someone who just had a transplant and they were effective at doing the transplant Jerome but they didn't have the anti-immune suppressants to actually have the body not reject the foreign tissue so you got the transplant and then the person would die a few days later so you know, my mom made a decision that's just, this is nothing, that's not the way that I believe my, my life should end. And we picked up and we moved to the States at age nine. So that gives you a little bit of a, just a small background of just my first nine years as uh, growing up as a kid. So your dad left behind that big business and went to US and started all the way over? So, so here's, and I tell you, like, you know, we we're talking, my, I, I wear my heart on my sleeve, right? I'm so open because I think that there's a lot of individuals who are, you know, going through things and they need to be able to see other people's experiences to learn from and maybe relate. So I share things very openly. You know, my, my father could not, no. And uh, when we were nine, we moved the family and we were so not aware of what was happening is when we came to the states we didn't have a social security number we basically came as refugees and my mom was told if you want to do this procedure there's only these two extremes either on one hand you have to be extremely uh wealthy right so you can pay out of pocket for all these services on the other hand you have to be extremely poor and my father, at that time, there was, you know, economically, there was a lot of challenges. He lost most of his business. So we were not in the category of being rich. So we had to be in the category of being really, really poor. So what, what happened is he continued, you know, he, he continued working and living in, in, the, in Russia, building his business and coming, flying back and forth. While we were growing up in, in, in America under Medicare. So we're talking about food stamps, we're talking about Section 8, we're talking about really just, you know, the first apartment that we got, you know, my father was able to bring in a suitcase of like $20,000 and go to a landlord and say, because there was no, we didn't have any credit history, we didn't have anything. He's like, could you just help an immigrant out? Here's a briefcase. That was the story, right? Nine years old, my brother was 12 years old, here we are trying to establish ourselves in this country as total immigrants with my mom being sick. We had family, thank God that it came earlier, but my father was always kind of moving back and forth. He just, he couldn't, he didn't see himself being able to, you know, close everything that's built in, in, in Russia, all the things that he was able to accomplish. On, on the other hand, right, he, he couldn't, you know, just, 
live with us and you know it was, it was that kind of complexity right so I, I, I you know there was a lot of anger and frustration at that age but as you get older I'm sure you experience I don't know about your family history we all got our wrinkles and there's a certain point just I've, I've gotten so much closer to my dad and has so much more appreciation for him now as a father who's also in a similar place had to make similar choices of do I leave my business behind and come to a new country or do I stay behind? You know, so I had to go through a similar choices like my dad did. And so we were chatting a little bit on LinkedIn and you mentioned that you were running a business at one point and so built a pretty large business and maybe you left it behind. So talk to me a little bit about the journey as an adult. What happened? Yeah. So, so skipping a few different sections, but you know, I, I would say, from 16 to 18, I was like so focused on doing everything, like not like my dad, right? Like, you know, he was an entrepreneur. I'm never going to be an entrepreneur, right? Like he, you know, in my mind as a small kid, like he chose finance, you know, financial providing for the family rather than physically being there. I'm, I'm almost sure now looking back, but that's how it felt. So I, I did scholastically very well in school and I was driven as an immigrant, like something about us, you know, there's this line in Hamilton musical, like immigrants, we get the job done. So that's what, you know, we just, my brother and I worked really hard scholastically and I got into a full scholarship to college called Williams College in, in Massachusetts. And I got a scholarship and I said, well, you know, I got a scholarship. I'm going to go on a year long journey, a spiritual journey. So similar to our friend, you Weiss, right? He's, so I went on a similar journey at 18. I was like, I, you know, is college and a great job and being you know, successful going to make that make me happy? Is that what's going to happen? So I said, let me go and explore virtuality. I, when I came to Israel, that was how I came to Israel first. When I came to Israel, my idea of a spiritual space was a mixture between a landmark forum and Tony Robbins type of environment and, and, and Jewish. And I basically lived for almost like seven years in the Jewish monastery. So I never went to college at that time. I gave up my full scholarship. And I lived almost like a monk for seven years. I got married you know, after five years of living in a very closed community. We're talking about full-time religious studies from six in the morning, I wake up and I would go into immerse in like baptism water, like where the ritual, we would wake up in the morning and go into a ritual bath. And then you'd go and pray and you'd study holy books that were written like 2000 years ago. And then you'd meditate and this would be your schedule for like 12 hours a day and doing that for five years. So that was an interesting, you know, <laughs> preparation coming from San Francisco. Got married and then I came out to San Francisco back as a teacher, as a spiritual teacher in San Francisco. And San Francisco just was an interesting place because I grew up, San Francisco had this energy of entrepreneurship, disruption, but also had this seven-day holiday that anyone in that community had to participate in, which is Burning Man. So I don't know how many of your listeners know about Burning Man, but that community is basically the whole city leaves. 
and it goes into a desert. We talk about a, a city in Nevada that gets built of 50,000 people in the middle of the desert where you're not allowed to exchange money. Everything's about gifting and everything at the end of it is burned down. So for that seven days, you build a city at the end of it, you would just literally burn it to the ground and leave no trace behind. So you had San Francisco on one hand, highly disruptive individuals I was interacting with, which were how do we scale companies like Google, Facebook, how do we disrupt internationally all these different systems? And then there was this holiday where all the same executives and all the same participants would go which was totally free of money and was totally imbued with psychedelics and musical festival and art. And people would come back and have this, like, have this sense of how they reintegrate from that world into the world of hyper-capitalism, which is San Francisco. And that was, that was San Francisco in a nutshell for me. And I was there as a spiritual teacher for people, right? So kind of as a guide. And the business started in a very strange way. It started not as a business, but as a service. I kept a very strict diet, which Yon also keeps a kosher diet. And I would organize events all the time in people's homes. I would take groups to wineries. I would take trips to Israel every six months. I would take groups to Israel. And I found that I would come to somebody's home and because of my diet, if you ever heard of, um, you know, a kosher diet is extremely extremely strict so we we essentially follow purely biblical diets no mixing milk and meat pork products no sh uh, shellfish so i would go to events and people would welcome me in and it created this awkwardness where i couldn't eat at their homes people like is this like i ordered them i ordered you a mcfillet which i used to love before i started my spiritual journey like, can you eat this? Said no. So when you people open up their home with food and you say no, immediately that creates this barrier. So I started just having a chef privately cook for my classes and my community. And then I build a website. And then I build a way, an e-commerce solution that people will be able to order. And then I had my, my community members who worked at Google start saying, can you bring this to our company? Because we have also people with dietary restrictions who would benefit. So I remember Google giving me a call and doing due diligence on my business. And that time, that business was like a small, like, you know, maybe like five, $6,000 a month. And Google comes like a major enterprise client, which eventually would be, would be doing around $120,000 a year of business with. And they're asking us, they have their own process of sustainability process. So they're coming to me and they're saying, how do you source your fish? Because we, we specifically focus on sushi, which is my favorite food. So like we were sushi mavens and they had agreed to contracts of only sourcing sustainable fish. All right. So they called me up and they asking me, where do you source your fish? And my response to them, it's, Oh, is it farmed or is it wild? And I'm like, I knew nothing about the area of sustainability, the first thing I know. So I said, like, I'm like thinking about what's better, wild or farm, or far, wild. I'm thinking tigers. I'm thinking Sahara Desert. I'm thinking really scary things. Farmed. I'm thinking cute, cute farmed animals under good conditions. Petting zoo. So I'm like farmed. Farmed 100%.
And I'm like, no, that's just not gonna work. Not gonna work. So next thing I know is like, I'll figure this out, don't worry. So next thing I know is I go into the world's first sustainable sushi restaurant formed in San Francisco to meet with the founder and bring him on as advisor to my company. And then he helps me build a sustainable operation where we start sourcing fish from, you know, like we can go into talk about fish for hours, but what means sustainable sushi? Build the company out, got enterprise clients, uh, went from Google to Facebook to Airbnb, Foursquare, and really built out a really strong operation where we were doing around $80,000 of business every single month. Really, really special business that was growing up. Well, I think the other thing that was, that was kind of fascinating was that as a spiritual teacher, I used to visit a lot of prisons. So, you know, when you are, when a person is in prison, they're essentially reach out to a lot of rabbinic or clergy for a few reasons. One of them, they have a, you know, they have time to reflect on their life and maybe looking to change their lives. There's a lot of data that shows people who have been reconnected to religious practice have a higher chance of not going back to prison. On the other hand, they're looking for people to write recommendations, like to help at the parole board to get out. So I used to meet prisoners a lot and go and visit them and learn their stories. So when I started hiring and learning about our system, I said, in any ways, I know this in the kitchens, the people I was hiring, a lot of them were either immigrants or people with a criminal history. And I, as I heard their stories about who they are, so I started going into prisons and learning more about that culture and starting to hire people directly from prisons to start working for us, which opened up a whole world to, to be as, as a white, Jewish, European, start opening up a whole world of understanding about how people live in a very different life and have very different dreams. That's like... Amazing. So what made you go into the prisons as kind of your mission work? I'm sure you could have picked some other things to do. Why the prisons? Look, I think there's a few things. I don't see myself so different. I know that sounds weird because I've never been to prison yet, right? I'm privileged in so many ways. I've never been in prison, but I've suffered depression. I've suffered limited beliefs. I've suffered, I've, I've been sick with the notion that I'm maybe not good enough or not loved enough or not, or not taken care of enough, right? And in a certain way, that made me relate to a lot of people who are in prisons who are physically can't be free. I felt emotionally there's so many things that I, and not just myself, but so many people, are hard for them to get freed from. So I felt that was a big way that I could relate the second thing that I will say is that as an immigrant who came from a different culture, a different country, facing the challenges of coming into the culture, a person who has been in prison is an immigrant back into society. So there's a lot of understanding of the challenges they're facing, right? How do you build a new community? How do you integrate into culture? How do you get a job? How do you be able to get skills, right? So I related to that. And the third thing I would say on the business level, right, is that I wanted people in the, in the food industry a huge amount of turnover. So I wanted to be able to have people that appreciate if I was giving them a chance, I, they would take it. And hi, when you hire people from halfway houses, they have to be back at the halfway house by a certain time. 
they have to leave at a certain time, right? They also, if they make a mistake, they're really in a place where in California, they could be seeing a lot of time. So their interest in really pushing themselves to succeed is really high because there's a lot of people not gonna give them a chance. So I thought it was a business move was a very smart decision. What's up tribe, it's your host Jerome. I just wanna let you know that we put together a free 15 point checklist for exiting the matrix. Jump on over to dreamshouldbereal.com in order to pick your free copy up. Let's get back to the show. I like it a lot. So we could go a couple of different ways here. And oh yeah. I know we're running up against time, but you know, the, the question that I have is like, you started building this thing and I'm sure there was a point where you were like, I probably should do something else. This isn't what I should be doing. And you continue cause you don't get to a million dollar a year business without doing that. So what when was that time i thought like two things i had one moment i remember a year and a half into the business two years and i started the business three thousand dollars it was really i didn't have financial backers it literally had something to give me a cash 3k and i was just struggling every single month and there's some the man who gave me the three thousand dollars was this executive at a company called splunk and he is the one who really introduced me to the first clients. That's what he did. He really brought me hand in hand. He brought me from office to office. And he was on vacation in Hawaii, 48 years old. We spoke a few days before. And then I got news. I got a call from his family saying he had a heart attack and he died. And uh, I remember like my main mentor who helped me start this business, who was literally the one that really took me by the hand and got literally just... And he died at 48. And I thought, like, how can I continue without this person pushing me? It was, it was so hard. Right? It was so hard to have not that person in my life. Think about him all the time, what he did for me. And uh, there's, a, there's a point there that I thought maybe I would give up, honestly, because I just felt so alone as a sole entrepreneur without having that guidance and having somebody I could lean back on. So I'll, I definitely think that was a moment and every business has those moments, right? Where they're just like, I think it's not going to work out, right? It's going to fail. And that was my moment, definitely, when I, when I felt that, for sure. Losing people, I think, is always a turning point for a lot of us. We start to reflect and ask questions about, you know, are we doing the right thing? And should we continue what we're doing? And so... I assume losing that mentor was probably a pretty big deal for you. Um, how did you make the decision to leave the business behind and go to Israel and start the 1031 exchanges? Yeah, so it was an interesting decision. I, I was going back and forth and I had two things um, that pushed me that direction. Number one was my kids. I had three kids. You know, At that time, there were seven you know, four and, and one. And I was looking around San Francisco and I was seeing this is a city that has the least per capita children. Right? It's just not built. That's not what people go there for. That was one. The second thing was I had a very strong 
this uh, a strong Zionist component to me, uh, where I saw myself long term, fulfilling a certain like I would say uh, messianic type of vision of coming back to land after not being there for thousands of years and rebuilding it. I wanted to be part of that story. There was a, I thought I could help that story a lot, move push it forward. And the third thing is it was math, and I'm, I like math. We were making $200,000 between my wife and I, and we were, had nothing left. So the business was doing around a mil. We were doing, making about a million, so with 200K. I had to be able to get the goals I needed to reach. I needed to have taken out $400,000, and I needed to have double or triple the business to get there. The problem was it would have taken me another three years to be able to do it, to do that. And I said to myself, I don't think I'm ready to be here for another three years as passionate as I am about it because my kids are going to be told to be able to move. So if I didn't make the jump now, it wasn't going to happen. And um, so I set up a plan where I would move to Israel and I would have my staff in place that could manage the business. The problem was, and I think this is a challenge that the person I put that was grooming for eight months to do that, this individual was, before he went to prison, he was a kingpin. He, he sold millions of dollars of product. He knew vendor relationships. He knew collections. He knew management skills. He was a great entrepreneur, but he was selling meth. And he was indicted for 10 years. But... He was actually a person I met in jail when I just came to San Francisco. And then I picked him up and hired him because uh, he's a brilliant guy. And then he spent two years in this rehabilitation program, which we could talk about another time, called Delancey Street. It's an amazing model. If anyone was, wants to understand the model, it's the last chance people have about getting out of jail. Two years of commitment in a military-style space that combines business and personal transformation. And then I brought him in and I did my best to train him. And I really knew very little about addiction at that time. I knew very little about pressure. I knew very little about, you know, my team of people that worked for me, you know, one was a car thief. Another person was, was bounce checks and credit card fraud. Everybody was a very talented in their own way. And I was trying to reform and create an environment where people could grow. The challenge is the more I pulled out of my business and I was preparing to go to Israel, the more pressure I was applying on my team and not preparing them well enough. And what happens when people get into pressure? And I know that about myself as with tendencies for depression and anxiety. When people get put under pressure, they go back to their basic survival instincts. And this guy... First thing I was thinking like, and I just remember we're in a job doing a massive catering event and I saw him like take a drink. It's a no-no. As a catering company, you don't take a drink at an event in general. Then the next thing I see him sometimes coming, you know, coming toward tired and he starts sharing with me like, yeah, I've been out, I have a girlfriend, like the girlfriend is a stripper. That's not good. Like, Talking about relationship goals, you know, it's called Instagram boyfriend, girlfriend, stripper. No. And then three months before I was going to move to Israel, he broke. We were really broke. You know, he started using meth again. It was identity theft. 
you know, thousands of dollars stolen, credit cards open, company vehicles. And the thing is, I couldn't even talk about this with my clients either, right? Because when you see things internally, you can't tell the client that you're going through any challenges. They can't know any of that. So internally, I'm dealing with this thing where the person I've been grooming is broken and he has to work through his own stuff. And then do you report that person that he has already two strikes? So like, do you report a guy like that who has two strikes and you know, if you report him, that's it. Right? Yeah. And this is the challenges you're facing. So I was able to find a new management staff for a year. I flew back and forth, but you know, I realized that as much as I love that business, unless especially with the people I was hiring, unless I was there full on giving my full attention to building out a strategy and program, it's like building, like managing a rehab. You have to have that manager in sight, right? Especially when you're dealing with some high risk individuals. So I had the opportunity as, this business, as my business in the States was going through a massive turnover and challenges. And I felt like I didn't have control over it to the extent that I could execute on it. I got an opportunity to be able to work for this great company at Madison because they saw this guy's an entrepreneur. He is, he can build relationships with people from all different cultures. And he also has the understanding of a small business owner, right? He can understand what it means to be able to build a business. And that's what, that, what's what they tasked me with. I've been in the last eight months being able to do that. So I went from a catering company, hiring people from, very different backgrounds, challenging backgrounds to dealing and working with some of the wealthiest investors in the country because you only do a 1031 if you've shown enough profit and capital gain to reinvest the money. So we're talking about the wealthiest individuals. So it's quite the contrast. But again, I love learning from every station. Yeah, I think that's beautiful. Uh, just... Just thinking about your background, right, from being a monk to running a business in Silicon Valley to doing Burning Man to now working with Madison doing the 1031 exchanges, like the the diversity is the spice of life. And I mean, even if we go all the way back to your upbringing in Russia, it was interesting and it's probably just, you know, my lack of awareness or knowledge. But, you know, when I saw your last name, I was like, well, he's Russian. So how is he like Jewish? Like, how do those things go together? And I just, I haven't really been around Orthodox Jews enough to really get that piece of it. But, you know, it's a really cool uh, conundrum or paradigm that you, you live in. And, you know, if somebody looked at you, I don't think anybody would put all these stories together in a pod and mix it up and say, hey, this is Alex. So I, this is beautiful. I appreciate you sharing. Uh, so two last questions. One, what are you most grateful for? I've created a group of about 20 people on a WhatsApp group that I update every single day about my life. Personal things, like this is my closest friends and the people who are there for me. I think I'm most grateful for that group. I, uh, I'm a very vulnerable person, as you can see, and, and there's a de desire to do that on Facebook and share, and I realized, now you know what? Like, it's okay if just the closest people in my life, just updating them like day one, like this is the thing I'm dealing with today and day two and day three and day four and day five. And that group is probably 
I'd say the most grateful thing I have right now in my life is, is just the group of, and my wife is part of that group as well, but that's, that I would encourage anybody that can, you know, right now with social media, um, we man on LinkedIn, but if you, you have your group of like 10, 15 people, and sometimes I know I get to the trap of wanting to see like hundreds of thousands of people look at me when really it could be just 15 and those people are just by your side and you know you can count on them. Yeah, I call it my five. I've got a group of five that I- Five, you got five? Yeah, that I share with. And so I, I like that though. Um, we're working on a mastermind concept and we're thinking the right number somewhere between 15 and 20 in a very, very similar approach of yeah. staying in touch and just going through life together and knowing that each other, you have each other's back and you give without expectation um, and just, you know, being a great person in that space. All right. So the last question is what gift are you giving the world? You know, I've suffered a lot in my life and a lot of challenges in my life. And again, people look at my life, maybe not see that, but I'm talking about it here, right? Cause that's where the game is. And uh, I've had friends who decided to just throw in the towel and just take their own life. So I think the gift I give to people is that no matter how much suffering or or difficult you experience and challenge you might be going through in every day, you take one more step forward and there's day one and there's day two and there's day three. And then we, I don't know how this game is going to get played out. This Corona thing, I was doing pretty well. And then this thing just, Ooh, that's that threw thing for a loop for me. Right. So I would say my gift to the world is just, showing up today alive and sharing that with people and then saying if you're hurting out there and if you're going through a lot of pain for whatever reason that might be for you um you know i just wanted you to do just one more day just take one more day and then you see what's going to happen just one more day one more day if you can find five five less people like i said those 15 people and just bring them in around you because God knows there's something, even in the way you're hurting, some reason, there's some reason why you've been given that. I don't know what it is. I don't know why that's for me. But there's a gift there for somebody else that even God forbid, even if you take your life in two weeks, in a month, even if you harm yourself, that one extra day that you're here is still a sign of you giving a gift to somebody else. And that's a serious thing. I think a serious thing is an understatement. I mean, this is huge. And I've got a good friend, Greg Washington, who is raising awareness about a w complex grief and PTSD. And so, you know, what you're sharing and, you know, the increased rate of suicide and the challenges people are facing with uncertainty in their lives is just, you know, more proof that, hey, we need to continue on this mission and continue to, you know, raise that awareness so people get okay sharing and talking. All the shame is in people not knowing. As soon as people know the truth, the shame can't hold you anymore. And so 
I just appreciate you being so vulnerable and sharing your story. It's an amazing journey and you're not done writing the chapters in the book. So, you know, I look forward to following and learning more as we go along. And Alex, if there's any words of wisdom you'd like to offer to the listeners outside of that amazing point you just made, here's your opportunity to do so. Just say the, the wisdom that I would, I would tell people is again, just one day. That's us. Let's take it one day at a time. And now things add up. It's a compound interest. I mean, the compound interest of one day for another day, man, that's, an, that's the thing that keeps me going. Right. So that's a, that's a gift that I hope to offer. And this has been an awesome episode. I really, really, really appreciate it. Pleasure, brother. Generous with your time. And we'll get the opportunity to talk to you soon. Thanks again, Alex. Sure, brother. It's a pleasure. Thank you for holding space with such curiosity. You're a great teacher. You're really, you come from with no judgment. And uh, I will say that one of the people that I encounter, it's just, you know, there's no time for you to, uh, to bullshit around. You just, you just bring yourself to, to the plate. And then that's okay. So in the way that you dress, in the way your hair looks, in the way that you treat your time, in the way that you treat your family. You know, so it's, uh, I'm honored the fact that you, you and I are in a relationship. This is awesome. Thanks, Alex. We'll talk soon. All right, brother. Thank you for joining the tribe today. We would love to hear from you. Please don't forget to rate, like, and share. Perhaps someone you know could benefit from what we've discussed. Until the next time, remember that your dreams should be real.